gospel lesson this morning is taken from the very first chapter of Mark's gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Be found pleasing in your sight. Amen. You may be seated. The 20-mile trip down from Jerusalem, up over the Mount of Olives, back down the Mount of Olives, through an area uh, that the Gospels all describe as the wilderness of Judea, and on to the Jordan River. Now this, this walk to go see this man was certainly no walk in the park. And yet people went. They went out to see a common man, not a rabbi. They went out to see a poor man, not a rich expert in the law, preach. To preach a message that was rather unprecedented. Well, naturally, we need to ask why. Why on earth did they go to such lengths to hear this man preach? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I couldn't tell you why people from Jerusalem and Judea went out, why Pharisees and Sadducees went out to see him. But what we do know is this. It had been 400 years. It had been 400 years since the prophetic word of God came to his chosen people, Israel. I mean, it had been 400 years since God spoke to Malachi, and since then, the Jewish people were keenly aware that there was not one legitimate prophet who came as a man speaking from God since that time. And now there was one. I don't think as Christians today, we can really appreciate the 400 years of history that happens when we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, or, or swipe just from Malachi to Matthew, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. For 400 years, the Jewish people put up with political battles as forces, first the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Egyptians, then the Syrians. Now the Romans fought for their land and robbed them of their independence. 
I don't think we can quite understand what it must have been like for the Jewish people to to have a faith all of a sudden go in such divergent areas. Not just the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but the Essenes, the Zealots, the Herodians, the, the scribes, and the Sanhedrin. I don't think, well, who would they understand what it would have been like for a culture, a people who was very proud of what their culture brought, was, was happy to be God's chosen, chosen people, to all of a sudden have some guy named Alexander the Great knocking on your door with this, this idea of Hellenization and completely change your culture and, and your language. I don't think we really can understand what it must have been like to go throughout all of that and cling to a promise that God said he would send his Messiah. God said he would send his Savior to help us. I can just imagine the conversations that took place on their way out to hear John preach. Do you think he's the one? Do you think this guy's really for real, or is he another fraud? Oh, I think he's Elijah reincarnated. Can't be. Can't be. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. Oh, no, no, no. This is the Christ. This is the one who will save us from Rome. And when they got there, this guy? Well, pre- 400 years gotten. And this is what you send your prophet to say? Repent? Be baptized? What is baptism? What, what is it do giving me forgiveness? And he, he's wearing that. He's supposed to be a pastor, I'm a prophet. And he, he's wearing that. And yet they listened to him. I don't know if I would have, but they did. The people that went out to hear John listened to him and they were baptized. And this morning, as we, as we look at Mark chapter 1, I want to find out why. Today, we kick off a new sermon series called Christmas Lights, Illuminating the Way to Christ. And as we do so, we join together with Christians throughout the world and throughout history and we celebrate a very special season, the season of Advent. And while Advent is celebrated by so many, it's, it's also under, misunderstood by many as well. Advent means coming. And during the season of Advent, we celebrate the coming of Christ in a manger in Bethlehem. But it's much more than that. We also anticipate his second coming. You see, God came to us in grace. He came to us in mercy. He came to us as a baby in Bethlehem who would one day die on the cross for our forgiveness. He came to us in love and rose for you. He'll come back. He'll come back in clouds to judge this world. He'll come back in all his glory to bring his kingdom. And so as we sit here, as sinful people between the the promise fulfilled of him come and the promise yet to happen of his coming, well, we step back and during this time, we reflect. We reflect on, well, who we are, sinners. We're people with sin that need a savior to come just like those people did in John's day. 
We need a Savior to come and rescue us from our sins. Before you think, man, Matt, you are really a Grinch. Like, this is December, man. This is Christmas. This is the time where we're supposed to get excited for all of the Christmas cheer. Just let me say this. Advent, Advent is a serious time, but it's not a sad time. It's a time certainly for contemplation, but not cheerlessness. Because while we, we look forward to Christ coming and, and we anticipate it and we celebrate the, the miracle in Christmas, know that it is only in the cloud of Advent that we can truly appreciate, truly understand the bright miracle that happens in Christ's birth. And so during this season of Advent, we're going to look at Christmas lights, four different lights, if you will, that will illuminate the way to Christ, that will show us Christ and help us to prepare for his coming. And I don't know what your plans are next week or the week after or the week after that, but I'm going to tell you right now, your plans should be to be here. Because over the next four weeks, what's going to happen is we're going to look at lights, different lights each week that are going to steadily increase in brightness as they lead us to that star in Bethlehem. This morning, we begin um, our series by looking at the message and the ministry of John the Baptist. There is no other person, there is no other preacher, no other prophet who really embodies what Advent is all about, a proclamation of preparation. And if you summarize John's ministry in just one word, it's this, repent. It is look at the fact that there is sin in your life, that there is a tension, there is a dark anxiety in your life that needs to to be taken care of so that in peace, in quietness, in calmness, and stillness, we can wait for Christ to come. Because that's what Advent's about, right? Well, it doesn't take a social scientist. It takes only a casual observer to note that those characteristics don't really characterize our tribe this time of year. Stillness quietness, calm, peace. Am I right? No, most often December's and the season of Advent is, is quite different. It's a time of stress. It's a time of deadlines. It's a time of things to do. And it's a time of the opposite of peace. But should it be? Well, this morning, John's message for us is this, that the only way to prepare for Christ is by repenting. John the Baptist came, and he came with this message. Here's John chapter 1, verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew's gospel tells us that John showed up and his message was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And when I picture John, I can't help but picture people who stand with signs on street corners. People who shout obnoxiously. People who maybe don't have the appearance that, well, puts me in the best holiday spirit. They don't necessarily remind me of glad tidings. And yet, that's what repentance is. Repentance means to turn or to change. That's essentially what repentance is about. It's about a change. 
And we, we love change, don't we? I mean, as people, we really like change, right? I mean, whether you sit on the left or the right side of the aisle, ideology that wins elections is change, right? And I don't know too many people that don't love it when the seasons change. Coming up in about a month, we're going to have a new year. And people are going to resolve to change. We love change. And not pictured here is another example that I think illustrates this. If I were to go to the married people here today and I asked you, what's one thing that you'd like to change about your spouse? Well, I bet, I bet you could maybe tell me one or maybe two things, right? But there is a kind of change that we really don't like. And that is the change that's personal. And that's the change that repentance requires. That's the change that Advent requires. Repentance is, is about walking in a certain direction and turning around, doing a 180. Repentance, well, going in God's direction, not Matt's. Repentance is about having a change of mind, thinking this way is right, thinking these things are good, but listening to what God's word says and saying, no, this is right. This is what repentance is, and we hate a change like that. There is nothing more countercultural or counterintuitive than admitting my life is not going the right way. I should change it. Nobody likes to say, I'm a mess. I need to do things differently. And yet, that's what repentance calls for. Repentance, I'm sorry, two of the hardest words in English to say. Can I give you just a, a personal example? For the past couple of weeks, I've been working with a um, service industry that, that our church has an account with, and uh, they didn't have some information right. So I went online, asked them to change the information. Nothing. Called, tried to get the information changed. Nothing. Finally, after exhausting all these different avenues, I sent a very polite, very professional message um, describing my dissatisfaction. Finally, I got an email back. Here's what it said. Mr. Rothy, I'm sorry to hear you are feeling frustrated. Please confirm the information is now correct. The information was not only still incorrect, I was also quite upset that they apologized not for their actions, but for my feelings. My immediate thought was, I don't want you to change the way I'm feeling. I want you to change the way you're, you're serving me. I'm sorry. Saying I'm sorry for things that I do is, is very difficult to say. It's why the spouse says to their loved one, I'm sorry you're feeling hurt. Not, I'm sorry my, my actions, my words hurt you. It's why parents don't need to teach their kids to blame, but they do need them to teach them to or learn to say, I'm sorry. It's why even as adults, even, even as grown Christians, we are kind of like little kids who, who can't quite say it, but mumble a, I'm sorry, without sincerity or genuineness. And especially during Christmas. It's doubly difficult to change, right? This is a time of tradition, a time where things are supposed to be a certain way. Oh, I change them. But that's what Advent is about. It's about change. It's about turning. 
So what do you need to change? Let me put it another way. What is it that is keeping God at an arm's length from coming to you with his love, with his forgiveness? For some of us, maybe it's changing how much we work. For others, maybe it's laziness. We need to change how little we work. For some, maybe it's materialism. For others, perhaps it's a lack of spiritualism and valuing what's important. For some, maybe it's an inner hostility. For others, maybe it's inhospitality towards our neighbor. Maybe it's hate. Maybe it's a feeling of ingratefulness. What is it? What is it that this season, during this time of year, you need to repent of, turn around, change your mind about? And if you're listening to that list of things and you're going, ah, pastor, there's none. I can't, I can't think of anything. Well, maybe there's your clue right there. We all need to repent. We all need to say we're sorry. If I can be brutally honest for a moment, we as a people are awful at Advent. We are absolutely bad, terrible at Advent. Why? Well, because we resent repentance. The one thing that is needed to prepare for Christ's coming. If you're following along, we are on page nine is, is where our sermon guide is for today. And that's our first fill in the blank. Is that we are awful at Advent because we represent repentance. And yet, it is repentance that is the only way to prepare for Christ. Without turning from sin, without going away from things that keep Christ's love and forgiveness from coming to us, well, we can only expect his wrath and his judgment. But as we heard in our lessons this morning, it is God's will that salvation comes to all people. And so he sent the prophet John. St. Mark's begins his gospel by quoting Isaiah the prophet as Isaiah foretells that John would be the forerunner of Christ. Here's what he said. He said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. What the prophet Isaiah is doing is using a word picture to to show John to us. John used the same words that a messenger would use to go ahead of a king into a town, into a village, or into a countryside. And when he went, he would go ahead of the king and he would say, prepare the road. Get ready for the king to come. If the road is uneven, if it's bumpy, level it out so it's easy walking. If there's an obstacle in the way, a tree or a rock in the middle of the road, move it. Make straight paths so that the king doesn't have to go around it. This is the message that John came with. He came with a message of baptism, of repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. John cleared the path for Christ to come into our hearts with love and forgiveness by saying whatever it is in your life, whatever obstacle stands it away, whatever boulder, whatever tree, however many potholes are there, Move them, get rid of them. And this is key. Catch this. It was why? For the forgiveness or the removal of your sins. In other words, what John is saying is that repentance and forgiveness, 
Well, they really go hand in hand. While repentance is us admitting that we have sin, we have, we have messes, we have things in our life that are barriers keeping Christ from coming to us, well, repentance of forgiveness also clears those things out. Can I give you another personal example of how that works? So as, as you know, parents, uh, putting your child to bed when they fall asleep in your arms without them waking up, it's an art, not a science, right? What worked last night might not work the next night, right? And while I am by no means a master at this art, I have gotten a little bit better at it. Um, early on, I would take my son when he fell asleep and I got to put him to bed. I'd walk into his room and I would lay him down and then I would turn off the light. And early on, I thought, hey, this is, this is something I can do. I can get out of this dark room without making any noise. But then I stepped on his squeaky elephant, which I left on the floor, and of course, he woke up. There was another time where I laid him down, turned off the light, took the turn too tight, and ended up kicking his tin or metal diaper bin, and he, he woke up. And this was the last straw. I laid him in bed one night, walked out, and because I didn't clean up his little jungle gym that was, you know, soft things hanging over it, I tripped and nearly fell and, of course, woke him up again. But then my brilliant wife had an idea. She thought that to fix this, what we're going to do is put a nightlight in the room. That way, when you go in, lay him down, turn off the light, you can turn around and the room is illumined, and you can see the obstacles, the things that lay in your path. It worked, or it's working somewhat at least. And that's what God's word does for us. God's word, the message of repentance, does that for us. It is the light in our life that makes repentance possible. It's God's word in our life that shines in our life and says, look, there are messes that you left in the room. There are things in your path that you caused, that you put there, that make any path out or in very difficult, if not impossible. But God's word not only makes repentance possible, well, it also makes repentance restful. Listen, here's what I mean by that. What is concealed can't be healed. Things that are concealed can't be healed. Just like a cancer inside can't be taken care of if it isn't known, if it isn't found out. So also, our sins won't be healed if they stay in the darkness, if they stay concealed. And so God's word not only illuminates them, shows them that they are there, that they are ours, that we have sin but it also heals them. It also fixes them. That's why John came with a message preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is the sorrowful turning away, changing your mind about sin. Forgiveness is the removal of it. And God's word, the message that John preached, provides both those things. The word provides both those things. The word who is made flesh, who came to make his dwelling among us, is that light in our life. That's why John said, 
after me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What John meant was that there is a baptism, there is a, a message of repentance or forgiveness that I can give you that does light sins, that does lift them out of your life. But there is one coming after me whose light is brighter than the noonday sun, who will not only light up your sins, but will absolutely lift them and destroy them and remove them. Christians, it is in the light of Christ that you and I can rest in repentance. For when we admit our sins, when we go before our Lord and confess that, that there, is a, there is a boulder, there is a big obstacle between you and me, we hear the voice of our God say, I already removed it. It is in the light of Christ and what he has done for us that when we go before our God and confess the embarrassing truth that we have tripped up time and time again over things that lie in the path, our God does, doesn't see it. He says, what trip? I didn't see it. All I see is Christ in you. It is in the light of Christ that all of the potholes, all of the sins that we commit time and time again and can't possibly begin to, to fill up on our own, we repent of them and Christ says, I came, I filled them up. I fulfilled the law perfectly for you with my life, with my death, and my resurrection. A nightlight, it's probably not the light that you expected to hear about during a a sermon series called Christmas Lights, right? And yet a nightlight is the very thing that symbolizes what God's word is. What God's word is for us in our life. It is a light in a dark place. It is a light that shines on us and in us and through us, showing us our sins, but showing them that they have been removed in Christ, who is the light of the world. You want to know something I, I just can't figure out about those people who, who lived in between the uh, Old Testament turned to New Testament? I can't figure out why in the world they got baptized. I mean, I can understand going out to the Jordan because of the novelty of John, right? You haven't heard a prophet for 400 years. But what I can't seem to wrap my head around, or at least what I couldn't at the beginning, was was why they got down in the water with him. Because Mark's gospel tells us they were baptized by him. And all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan. Well, I think our hint comes in the way that Mark describes John's message. He describes it as the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Good news. That's what John brought. He brought good news to the people of Israel. Good news is not advice. Advice is, is counsel. Wisdom on how you can try to improve your life. But that's not what he brought. He brought good news. That the one who was promised is about to come. And the one who will come will bring goodness, will bring life, will bring peace, 
and salvation for you. This good news we call the gospel. And this message of good news, the gospel, well, it's good news for you and I as well. It's good news for people like you and I who during the season of Advent are preparing for Christ to come. The good news is this. He has already come. He has already come, and so you and I are already ready. For people who prepare right now for Christ's coming, the message of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, makes a difference in our life. Because you see, for people who are awful at Advent, the Messiah comes and he makes us, well, awe-filled at Advent. As we stand and we marvel at the fact that he has come. He has come to us with forgiveness. He has come to us with life. And for people who are preparing for his coming now, we don't have another thing to add to our list of things to do, of things to cross off and items to get done. We have but one thing to do, and that is rest. That is rest in the message that he has come, and he will come again. Amen.